Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Air Warrior podcast, bringing you all the news and key talking points from military aviation, from deployments and exercises to attrition and procurement. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, and this week we're speaking with Saab about its Gripen multi-role fighter, detailing ongoing development efforts, current programs, as well as new markets the platform is or could be offered into. All of that coming up a little later on in the show. The news this week. It can be revealed that the UK's planned fleet of 14 H-47 extended-range Chinook helicopters will be delivered over a tight three-year time frame following the recent award by US Special Operations Command to US Defense Prime Boeing for the manufacture and delivery of the aircraft. A June 22 contract modification by the US Department of Defense valued the UK program at $580 million. The release from Boeing the same day stated that the UK RAF will become the first international operator of a Block 2 Chinook, with deliveries scheduled to start in 2026. A UK Ministry of Defence spokesperson later confirmed to Air International that the deliveries were expected to conclude in 2028. The H-47ER Chinooks will likely be similar to the MH-47G Block II helicopters operated by US Special Forces. Meanwhile, the US State Department has approved a possible foreign military sale of F-16CD Block 7072 aircraft as well as a range of anti-air and anti-surface missiles to the Philippines for a combined value of $2.49 billion. In a series of statements announcing the approval on June the 24th, the US Defense Security Cooperation Agency said that the possible sale included 10 F-16C Block 7072 aircraft, 2 F-16D Block 7072 aircraft, 12 AGM-84L1 Harpoon Block II air-to-surface missiles, and 24 AIM-9X Sidewinder Block II air-to-air missiles. The possible FMS is linked to the Philippines' multi-role fighter program, with Manila also thought to be considering Saab's Gripen CD fighter. And in attrition news, an Ethiopian Air Force-operated Lockheed C-130E Hercules tactical transport has been destroyed after apparently being shot down by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, a paramilitary rebel group in Ethiopia, on June 23rd. The C-130E Hercules, belonging to 15 Squadron at Debrizit Air Base, a part of the Harar Mida Airport in Bishoftu, was carrying troops and ammunition to an unknown destination at the time of the incident. The tactical transport aircraft crashed near the town of Gijet in the Sahati Samri district of the country's Tigray region, killing all on board. The number of personnel aboard the aircraft at the time has yet to be confirmed. And that was the news. Coming up next, it's time for Saab for all the latest on its Gripen fighter program. Involved in the military aerospace sector since the 1930s, Swedish defence OEM Saab has had a front row seat to the changing fortunes, trends and influences of defence aviation. Just looking at its more recent designs from the Draken to the Viggen and the latest in line JAS-39 Gripen, the company has always had a very specific and in some cases very different notion as to which route to take when thinking up the next generation of jet fighter. So where does the Gripen fighter find itself in a world addicted to the idea of stealth designs? How is the platform faring against some fearsome competition? And where might it be headed in the future? Well, joining us on the Air Warrior podcast is Richard Smith, Deputy Head of Gripen Marketing and Sales at Saab, to help us answer these questions. Mr. Smith, welcome. Thank you very much and uh, good morning. Good morning indeed. 
Uh, so go through, if you can, at the start, the history and the initial development of Gripen. Where's it come from? So I guess what I could start with is uh, one of the things that really attracted me to this company is basically how it's, you, you talked about addiction and they have an addiction here with innovation. And I came from a quite a big aerospace company in the UK back in 2002. And the first thing that really strikes you when you come here is how everybody's absolutely focused on research and development and innovation. It doesn't matter where you are within the company, it's kind of a, a part of the DNA. And Gripen really came out of a, a competition back in the, the late 80s to replace the, the vegan fighter. And for many of us, when we were in the UK, we looked at Sweden and saw the vegan, saw a real Cold War fighter, Cold War warrior. Hmm. And uh, it was kind of a je ne sais pas. You, you saw it, you didn't quite know everything about it, but you knew that this was a really cool jet. And I think it's somewhat the same with Gripen. I think we... Uh, we have this fantastic fighter. It's been on a real journey over the last decades. And now we've, we've got to somewhere where we really want to be with the Gripen E. And I guess we can talk a little bit more about that now as well. Absolutely. I mean, the decision by Saab with the Gripen not to go down the stealth route in terms of design was, mm. was, was a very deliberate one. As many Western OEMs and aerospace companies were looking at, 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 at stealth, Saab decided no they will design it mm. as they've designed it with the grip. Mm. So what was the inspiration for that or the, or, the, or the reasoning? I think it's a really good question and it's one that we get asked quite a lot, I can say. And I think we took a very conscious decision, as you said, not to go down the stealth route. And there are a few reasons for it. I guess first and foremost is Sweden, even though we were something like the third biggest air force in the world back in the Cold War period, we are no longer that. And I think stealth works quite okay if you have the numbers in the Air Force as well. So if you have the size of the US, you've got the opportunity to have several hundred fighters, then you can have stealth fighters where you can provide top cover. So, I mean, if you look at now where we are with F-35 and the top cover from F-22s, maybe 15 or F-16, then it works okay with the numbers. But we don't have those numbers. And if you look at the, let's say the, the vast majority of operators around the world, they don't have those numbers like the US do. They're often talking about anything from, say, 60 up to 100, 120 aircraft. I guess that's the first one. The other one then is, from our perspective, uh, I guess the second point is, you know, stealth, as we know, is quite difficult to maintain and keep us stealthy. We've seen that from going back into the 50s, 60s, or I guess 60s and 70s with the, uh, the early stealth fighters. And one of the examples or anecdotes that I've heard quite a lot is, you know, you're in a dark room, you put a little bit of a luminescent paint on the nose of something, then you open up this great big torch and this luminescent paint just glows in the room. And that's exactly like a stealth fighter. You know, you, you lose a little bit of the, the paint work on the stealth coating and it shows up on a radar. I guess the third point for us is that once you set the airframe, it's quite difficult to change it. So I guess if you're designing something from scratch to be a stealth fighter, that's one thing. But once you've designed it, you're stuck with it. So as soon as you have sensors, be it radars or active or passive sensors, sooner or later, that technology will evolve where they can see that certain shape. And ultimately, any fighter has to emit some sort of emission, whether you put the radar on and go active or whether you've got 
you know, the, the hot end at the back. So we took a decision to say, okay, we have this great airframe when we've transisted from earlier versions of the grip and to where we are today. And we decided that we put our research money, our development into basically electronic warfare. And in terms of electronic warfare, both in terms of going into contested airspace, surviving in contested airspace, evading, detecting, and actually getting out of that contested airspace. That's one thing. So defensive, but also offensive. So with the new grip that we have today, we also have what we call electronic attack, both built in. So on the front end, of course, with the AESA antenna, but also we carry an electronic attack jamming pod and decoys as well that we take into that contested airspace in order to act offensively. And then the next question I normally get asked is, well, why that? And well, technology moves at such a lightning pace today. Mm-hmm. What we've seen is that putting the money into those types of sensors really allows us to maintain that technological edge. And it, it's, it's, you can't say it's every day or every week that technology is moving, but it's almost that pace at the moment. Yeah, you make a, a very good argument for sort of non-stealth designs and going about entering these contested airspaces and operating in these contested airspace in a different way. Because as you say, you have to keep relevant to change. And as you said, the change, mm. technological change is, is advancing to a point whereby traditional approaches to upgrades and evolution of platforms don't really apply anymore. You've got to be a lot faster and more agile to do it. Mm. So uh, obviously the Swedish Air Force uh, operates the main CD variant, Gripen. How has that platform evolved from, let's say, the A? Because as you say, evolution happens in aircraft. Mm. Where's it gone from the A to the CD variant now? So as you say, yeah, Sweden is operating the CD variant today, and we're operating what we call MS-20. And uh, MS stands for material system in Swedish, which basically means the, the current software hardware version. And that version shows how far we've come from MS kind of the early MS that we had on the Gripenades. And I mean, one of the reasons a lot of Brits are here, even now in, in Sweden with Saab, is that we brought kind of the, the UK and particularly the NATO qualifications with us into Saab. So when we came here and were on the journey from the A to the C, it was very much as part of a NATOization program. So it was very important then that we got rid of all the, the wonderful Swedish in the cockpit, put it into English, we came into NATO heights and weights, etc. And of course, I'm looking on my screen here, is this, this aircraft inside the cockpit changed radically. We went from black and white displays to full colour displays. And really important for us, okay, sooner or later, even though we're not a NATO member, we will end up going on some sort of NATO exercise or NATO operations. And therefore, everything from refueling, rearming, had to be NATO standard, NATO standards. So it was a big journey. And where we are now, well, you know, this is a pretty capable aircraft that we have in Sweden. We have a new radar front end. And the reason being, we needed increased range on the radar to cope with carrying the meteors. So uh, Sweden was, I think it was anyway, the first to go operational with the meteor missile. We were definitely the first to actually help MBDA on that integration process. And we carry now four meteors two Iris T on the wingtip, the new front end to cope with the range of the Meteor, GCAS, IFF mode five. So, you know, we've, we've really taken the grip and C from that kind of initial NATO version of the platform 
into something that's really, really quite capable. Indeed. And then, of course, you've got the E, the EF variant, which mm-hmm. is in development, of course, for the Swedish Air Force and the Brazilian Air Force as well. So this is the next step, isn't it? This is the next generation of grip and fours. It is. And uh, I think from a marketing perspective, the problem I've got is that it looks just like the early versions for the naked eye, particularly when it's painted in the kind of Swedish two-tone grey. It just looks very similar, but it's a completely different beast. And as we said, we, we decided we would not change the airframe in terms of stealth, but we did end up changing the airframe to cope with carrying more weapons, more fuel, and to install a bigger general electric engine at the back end. So from that side of it, it does look a little bit different if you understand where to look. As a tip to see the grip and E difference of the C, look at the belly, it's bigger on the stomach, and look at the wingtips, because the wingtips are where we have this enormous electronic warfare system and they have this huge kind of fat front end and back end. The real difference though is inside. and it's in terms of the avionics that we have and uh, quite fascinated to watch and listen to Will Roper until he left position, of course, in the US. Talk about how the US are really looking now to have avionics where they can go to war day one, learn, maybe they see a new sensor, perhaps a collaborating uh, country sensor that they've not really prepared for. They take in the information, they go home, they learn, they see what's different. Then they do a software application, an application to improve and change the systems overnight. So the next day of the war, they're ready for that combat again. We're almost there. He's talking about that in years to come. That's been our philosophy for the last five, 10 years with the Gripen, that we have this avionic system whereby compartmentalized flight critical, but everything else we can work on anyway. To put it into another perspective, then the weapons We want to go from being able to develop or integrate a weapon that could take maybe a year or 18 months to do that in literally weeks, basically because the avionics system can handle it. So is that an advantage for a pilot? Absolutely. Particularly if you know you're called to war and you go into the next conflict, say in the Middle East, and you have two or three weeks to prepare and you need to get a new weapon on to cope with a different environment, then we can do it. And that's a big advantage for the pilot. So the real differences are inside, I would say. It's obviously a very, very capable platform, the grip and obviously the C, but also the E version. What about the operating costs of these two or the difference in operating costs of, let's say, the current CD variant and the future operating costs of the EF? How are those different? Mm. And of course, just adding on to that, operating costs are a very, very important factor for potential customers to take into account because look at some of the competitors in the market and you have, let's say something like at the top end, the F-35, they're running at $30,000 per flight hour. So how important is it to make sure that you provide a platform that's capable and it can meet the requirements of an Air Force, but they can actually afford to operate it in the first place? Yeah, it's a really good question. And uh, it's a difficult one for me to answer because if I can start with, again, the DNA perspective of Gripen, it was an absolute critical design feature when you even go back to the, the first Grippens that enter service of Sweden. Sweden, I think, is very forward thinking in terms of this area within aerospace defense generally. So their view was when you design a fighter, yes, it has to be operationally capable. It has to perform the tasks that we, Sweden, needed to perform, but it also has to be affordable to operate. 
We don't really give costs out. And I can come on to why in a second. But but I would say if you compare a grip and let's say C, just for the sake of it, because it's an operational service, to other fighters, let's say with two engines in operational service, our calculations are around 50% cheaper. Okay, is, is that a lot? I guess if you understand aerospace and defense and understand how much they cost, as you said, F-35 maybe is around 30,000, 40,000 US a flight hour. Over 30 years, over 200 flight hours a year for a fleet of, let's say, 100 aircraft, you're saving billions. The reason it's hard to say, okay, is it 15, 20, 10? It really comes down to what do you want to include in that calculation? So now if you include petrol oil lubricants, then you could say maybe five, 6,000 US dollars. And that's really the difficulty we have when we see these figures that get bounced around, even from a competitor's side, we very seldom understand exactly what's in it. it. It should go all the way down to catering, security guards at the base, et cetera, to be included in that flight hour price. But often you end up comparing apples and oranges, I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, then what about the export opportunities for the CD and the EF versions? Obviously, the CD has been put forward for a number of competitions. It hasn't been successful in all of them. There's a lot of competition out there. So what sort of opportunities do you see in the near term Mm. and also the long term for the EF version? Yeah, it's an absolutely fierce market. And uh, we can see now, if you take the CD market, for instance, there are, of course, lots of really capable fighters within that market segment. F-16, for example, new, Vipers. Uh, We're seeing market entry from a lot of secondhand platforms as well. Mm. Uh, whether it's Rafale or even F-16 as well. So it, it is a fierce, it's a fierce market segment. That said, uh, and as you said, okay, you've lost a few. We do have potential, I believe, to sell more CDs on the market. We're still focusing very much on Central Europe, but also within Asia. Uh, and then let's see where that takes us, I would say. As I said, we remain confident with the CD and with the E. We sold now to Sweden, Brazil. Brazil has a target for I think it's up to 100 aircraft longer term. We are fighting away in India. We're in uh, Latin America as well. So I think generally when you look at our business case, which is to sell over, let's say, 450 aircraft, we, we remain very confident within the marketing side that we can actually achieve that. The two big programs that we're working on now really for Grip and E, of course, are Finland and Canada. Uh, Finland is uh, 60-ish aircraft and Canada is for 88 aircraft. So, you know, both of those are big numbers and you could say it's the the Premier League in many ways in terms of who you're fighting against. You've got F-35, Super Hornets, Typhoon, Rafale. So it it is the, the big boys club. Indeed, there's a lot of competition out there. Fingers crossed, I guess, in the case of Saab, that you get some success in those programs. Um, just closing, what's next for the Gripen? Because we've gone from the E, mm-hmm. we're now on the CD, we're going through into the EF version. Are we going to have a, a GH version or might there be something different being cooked up? Yeah, who knows where we're going? I mean, uh, as you know, Saab is working as well. Sweden is working together with the Brits and the Italians on the, the future combat air system. Let's see where that takes us. In terms of Gripen, Well, we have a program that goes way out uh, until the 2060s. Of course, the development is not funded all the way up to there yet, Mm. but I'm sure it will be. Will we have a GH? Who knows? The main focus at the moment for the Grip and E program is is both on deliveries 
and then uh, continued tactical development of the system. And really, we continue to focus on the, the sensors and electronic warfare in particular and the radar, just to really keep those up to date as we go into the mid-20s. Okay, and that's where we'll have to leave it. Uh, Richard Smith, Deputy Head of Gripen Marketing and Sales at Saab, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the podcast or other air domain news, visit the Key Aero and Air International websites. But for now, until next week, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.